Well, hello again. It's Mark Wallstrom, and welcome to another edition of Speaking of Justice, a podcast, uh, well, sponsored by Wallstrom and Associates, one of the nation's leading uh, settlement planning and uh, settlement consulting firms based here in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, this is, uh, I guess, episode three in season three of uh, Speaking of Justice. So uh, I want to thank you for joining us today. And we're going to go right into our guest. I have a uh, fascinating uh, uh, program for some people. Some of this might be something that a lot of people aren't aware of and typically don't talk about. But uh, it is a, an issue on uh, structured settlements in, and, and some big law firms on some big cases got into a lot of trouble by inadvertently making mistakes. And there was a, a recent appellate uh, case in uh, California in U.S. District Court, a uh, big decision that I think will have uh, tremendous interest for trial lawyers. Uh, we're going to try and keep my intro uh, very short today and uh, get right into, uh, you know, meeting with our guest and uh, talking with him. And uh, our guest today is going to be Patrick Hendert. And uh, he is the uh, vice president of uh, new business development at Independent Life, uh, but also I think better known uh, throughout the profession and industry is uh, the co-author of the seminal book on structured settlements in practice called Structured Settlements and Periodic Payment Judgments. Uh, it's been published for 20, 25 years. It's continuously updated, and it is essentially the Bible. And uh, Pat was an expert witness on this case, uh, so he's bringing some really uh, good uh, insight on how this works and you know how we can uh, make this, uh, you know, make the case, a case like this not happen again. And uh, to help uh, trial lawyers really kind of avoid, uh, you know, uh, some of the traps. So again, I'm uh, gonna try and keep the intro short. Uh, I will uh, bring Pat in here on the phone in just a moment. And, uh, you know, we can, uh, we can get into this. It's, a, it's kind of a meaty topic and might be a little dry for some people. It's not true crime. We don't have anybody dead uh, in this particular Case any murders, we don't have any DNA evidence, but uh, in trial practice, and you know, it's a 50, 60 million dollar case that uh, inadvertently mistakes were made and there's some big names involved. So I think you're going to be interested. So sit tight here through the music for just a moment. We'll get Pat on the phone. Okay, well, uh, joining us now on the phone is uh, Pat Hindert. Uh, Pat, how are you doing today? Mark, just fine. Nice to uh, nice to join you. It's been a while since I've been on your show. It, it has been, and uh, hopefully it won't be so long the next time. Uh, I've kind of uh, set the stage for the today's conversation. I told him it was a, uh, an important case. A little bit about your background and, you know, that you are with Independent Life and Vice President of uh, Business Development, but also got into the, you know, your ongoing authorship and updating of really the industry uh, best practices Bible, which is the Structured Settlements and Periodic Payment Judgments uh, book that is published, you know, year in, year out and is available to trial lawyers all over the country. We'll have a link to it where they can uh, find it, uh, get their hands on it if they don't already. But let's let's talk about this case. You know, it's a complicated case. Uh, it was a high dollar case. It, it represents a lot of uh, very powerful firms, and I think people who uh, we would generally consider competent. But it, you know, it was kind of a perfect storm of uh, 
of situations that uh, need to be avoided. So that just give us the backdrop and tell us a little bit more about it, Pat. Well, Mark, just by background, uh, as you know, uh, and we've both been in the personal injury settlement planning and structured settlement industry for a lot of years. Uh, there have been some historic cases uh, in our industry. And just to highlight two or three of them, if you go back, the Wild lawsuit was very historic. It uh, was an antitrust lawsuit that opened up the structured settlement industry to plaintiff brokers. Yeah. Uh, then we had the child's lawsuit, which allowed plaintiff attorneys to defer their attorney's fees. We had the Grillo case, uh, which uh, really established potential liability for plaintiff attorneys that didn't consider structured settlements. This case that we're going to talk about today, which uh, I refer to as the Moraz case, uh, is that sort of case. It doesn't really establish any structured settlement or uh, uh, personal injury settlement planning precedent, but it really is a case study in uh, what should be best practices. Yeah. Uh, it's a, uh, and, and just by way of background, uh, why it's important, uh, it's a, uh, uh, an unpublished 2019 decision of the California Court of Appeal, Second District Division Three, and to my knowledge, at least at this point, only the Westlaw citation is currently available. And for those of uh, your listeners who have a pen or pencil available, it's uh, the Westlaw citation is 2019 uh, Westlaw two four. Three three one eight eight, and although the case is although the case is referenced as capital A period capital M period uh, versus Leaf Cabrasier Hyman and Bernstein, I refer to the case as the Moraz case because the minor plaintiff in the underlying professional malpractice case was named Addison Moraz. Now, why is the case important? Um, in, in my opinion, there, there are three things that make this case important. For, first of all, the, there are actually two underlying cases. There's the wrongful death case, and there's a professional malpractice case that followed, plus the appeal from that malpractice case. Those cases combined are both complex and fascinating, and we're going to talk about those, I assume. Yeah. But secondly, the combined cases represent almost a Harvard business school type case study for what can go wrong from a personal injury settlement planning and structured settlement standpoint in complex cases. And finally, and this is where we get to our, uh, our, our positive part of it, these cases highlight what should be best practices in what should have been done or what could have been done manner. Okay. Well, so that, that's my way of introduction. Sure. Um, well, let's jump right into it. You know, I, I know you worked as a testifying expert on behalf of the minor plaintiff, uh, Addison Moraz, and the professional malpractice case. Why don't we just get right into it? Because there's a lot of ground to cover. And uh, tell, tell us what, tell us the facts on the case. Well, um, except for uh, not obtaining a structured settlement for the minor plaintiff, 
uh, Addison Mraz, her attorneys actually did an incredible job in this case. Uh, and and I, I think that's an important preface here because for, for many attorneys uh, who represent personal injury plaintiffs, their expertise and desire is to, imp- to obtain the largest possible amount of compensation. And Leif Cabrazier did that extraordinarily well here. The, the format of a lump sum settlement or judgment for most attorneys is generally uncomplicated. Personal injury attorneys generally know how to draft a release or other form of settlement documentation that conforms to state law and obtains for their clients a one-time amount agreed agreed upon to be due for their clients. But that's not true with structured settlements, and that's what we're going to see. In this case, starting out with the the case itself uh, involved a lawsuit brought by uh, the survivors of a wrongful death of Richard Mraz, from an accident caused by an allegedly defective Dodge pickup. Uh, we'll, we'll refer to that as the Chrysler case. Okay. And it was brought by his uh, surviving spouse, Adriana Moraz, and her three children. Uh, just, to, just to give you a sense of why this was such an, an amazing result, and the result was over $54 million in, in a verdict, uh, of which 50 million were punitive damages. This result was obtained, uh, was noteworthy on a number of grounds. First of all, uh, until this verdict and judgment, uh, was, and, and this was on um, in 2007, mm-hmm. until this verdict and judgment, no plaintiff had won a, a park-to-reverse defect uh, case against Chrysler. This is the first ever of, of this type of case. And the jury assigned only a 10% in comparative fault to the uh, deceased for failing to shift the uh, the truck fully in the park. In addition, the award of punitive damages, and we're talking 50 million here, was exactly the amount suggested by Leif Cabrasier, the plaintiff counsel, despite the fact that the Supreme Court uh, had just recently decided the case Philip Morris versus Williams, that it cast a serious doubt on the constitutionality of such punitive damage awards. I remember it well. Uh, and so, so it was an incredible accomplishment by Leif Cabrasier. Now, if we go to the factual uh, uh, circumstances uh, specifically, let's start with the jury award of 54 and, and, and try to look at what went right, but also what went wrong here. Uh, the, the jury award was of 54 million, uh, of which 50, in, 50 million was uh, in punitive damages. And this was back in 19, uh, 2007. Um, and, and the key here was immediate, not immediately after that, and it, before the judgment was entered in 2009, Chrysler filed bankruptcy. Right. I remember. And, and, yeah. and this is the amazing thing. Uh, the amazing thing was that, that the plaintiff attorneys were able to secure a $24 million settlement from Chrysler after they entered bankruptcy. And, 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 and this yeah. is with uh, very few assets and lots of creditors. They're able to get $24 million in a settlement. So yeah. if, if we're talking about what they were able to do well, uh, we've, we've got a long, uh, a long balance sheet here. Right. Um, so, so they, they file for bankruptcy. Um, on August 
27th, uh, 2009, Leif Cabraser, uh, the attorneys for the plaintiffs, mediated the settle- uh, a settlement term sheet with Chrysler and Safeco. Safeco had had been uh, Chrysler's um, uh, insurers. They had uh, secured uh, Chrysler's assets uh, with a bond when okay. they went into bankruptcy. Okay. Uh, and, and they had, they had uh, entered into and mediated a, a settlement term sheet for $24 million subject to bankruptcy court approval. But that term sheet, and this is the first mistake. Actually, it wasn't even the first mistake, but it was a mistake. Yeah. There was no mention of structured settlements in the term sheet. Now, now that's an, that turns out to be an obvious mistake, and we'll come back to it. Okay. Perhaps the earlier mis- mistake, and, and we can talk about this in a, in, in a bit, was, was not uh, 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 asking for or agreeing to a qualified settlement fund. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the next the, the next step was that there had to be bankruptcy court approval, and the the bankruptcy court uh, did approve it. But the bankruptcy court approval also uh, made no mention of uh, uh, any structured settlements. So if you're looking at this purely from a cash settlement standpoint, twenty four million dollar settlement sounds great. Yep. The problem is with punitive damages being taxable damages, as you know, as opposed to other types of uh, damages being non-taxable, you've got a major tax problem on your hand and and no planning for it. So uh, at, at, at that point, um, there wasn't any, there there had been discussions uh, about a potential structured settlement for one or more parties uh, and the advantage, as you know, Mark, of a qualified settlement fund is you have all the time that you need after a settlement is agreed to and a defendant is removed from the case to deal with a lot of settlement issues, yep. including a decision as to whether or not you want a structured settlement. In this case, a lot of things were rushed. And one of the issues that, that they couldn't decide on was whether or not to have a structured settlement. Mm-hmm. And in that confusion, with a deadline approaching for not bankruptcy court approval, but trial court approval, which had to come on top of bankruptcy court approval, there was a realization uh, by the uh, attorneys that maybe there should be a structured settlement or maybe the uh, at least one of the plaintiffs, the minor, should have a structured settlement for the punitive damages because right. the allocation of the twenty-four million had to parallel the the fifty-four million, which included only four million of tax-free damages and fifty million of tax uh, of taxable punitive damages. Well, uh, the attorneys, Leif Cabrasier, sent a an email on October first, two thousand nine telling Safeco to hold the check that was that needed to be sent and and to wait instructions on a structured settlement. Mm-hmm. Safeco either didn't get the email or didn't uh, obey the email and instead one day later wire, wired a check for 24 uh, million dollars uh, into the Leaf Cabrasier's trust account which, as you know, Mark, creates a constructive receipt problem. Right. And pretty much effectively, 
eliminates the possibility for a structured settlement. Now, a lot of things happened after that fact, and and it becomes uh, almost like a Chinese fire drill as they go back and forth trying to undo uh, the, the, the problems that have been created at that time. Right. And, and a lot of it is, uh, Leif Cabrasier trying to get, uh, Safeco to take back the check that they have, uh, already issued and, uh, Safeco first saying that they would do it if the, um, uh, bankruptcy court would, uh, sign a new order and then, saying they wouldn't. The long and the short of it is Safeco, after paying the check into the Leaf Cabrasier Trust account, refuses to go forward, and it ends up not being, uh, no one's able to effectuate a structured settlement after that. And the estimated cost to the minor plaintiff as a result of having to take a cash settlement as opposed to a deferred structured settlement uh, is $600,000 of tax that she would not otherwise have had to pay. Right. So uh, that leads us to a, um, uh, to a subsequent firing of uh, Leif Cabrasier, hiring of another attorney, and filing a malpractice lawsuit uh, in which I was retained as the structured settlement and uh, uh, qualified settlement fund expert. The trial court brings back a uh, kind of a strange verdict of four hundred thousand uh, dollars, and on, on the basis of a common law mistake. Uh, and uh, there's some some other results, but then we get the appeal that completely exonerates um, Leaf Cabrasier, sends it back uh, to the uh, trial court to re- essentially reverse the $400,000 uh, uh, trial earlier trial verdict and 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 so that's the that's the end of it no 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 money uh, of course there there was a earlier large verdict but but no money on the professional malpractice case uh, verdict uh, and, okay. and and no precedent uh, but still some some key best practice lessons as we look at this that we can talk about uh, and and that's uh, that's my best effort to summarize uh, the the two cases. Well, you know it's it's fascinating because you bring up a lot of uh, I mean there's there's a lot to talk about in this case, uh, both for settlement professionals and attorneys. But you, you made a you hit on a couple of really key points, and and let me just kind of uh, we'll dig in for our, our clients who are trial lawyers on this. You know, one of the biggest things uh, that people continually fail to do on large multi-claimant or catastrophic cases is establish a 468B, Section 468B Qualified Settlement Fund or Trust. I mean, that people continue to this day to not set these up and prepare these cases uh, to completely avoid what happened in this case uh, is mind-boggling. And, you know, we're going to be doing some shows on Qualified Settlement Funds there's a lot of information on my website at Wallstrom and Associates about these and lots of literature out there. And it, it, to me, it is, it is the best standard of practice on almost every significant case to have one set up so that you don't run into these 
issues where you're rushed. I mean, you know, they got Chrysler in bankruptcy, they got trial court dates, they've got minors. And in this case, as you pointed out, the trial lawyers did a fantastic job. I mean, it is an amazing verdict uh, in that case. And, you know, it was unprecedented at the time. And, you know, uh, the, to, to not have the qualified settlement fund to me is the, the first fundamental error, but it's an error that is common to trial practice all over the country and all types of cases. And we can get into the causes for why that is, but it is a lack of education and in many cases a lack of cooperation on the part of defendants to fund into and pay these for a variety of reasons. So, you know, I think... I think that part is fascinating, uh, number one. And then, you know, you talk about the term sheet language, and this is another thing that many people uh, really mess up on uh, and, and kind of go into that a little bit on term sheet language because uh, I don't think people realize the importance, particularly in a case like this where you had a punitive uh, damage case, you had a verdict, you had settlements in verdict. Uh, why is that term sheet so important, Pat? I'm sorry. Uh, why is that term sheet uh, language? Why is that so important? Well, the, the the term sheet language protects you in terms of retaining the option to structure subsequently. You don't have to, but it 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 keeps open the option. Uh, it 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 uh, it means that you continue to have the option to do a traditional structured settlement with either a qualified or non-qualified assignment, or if the language so provides, you can use a uh, qualified settlement fund. And uh, every uh, plaintiff attorney, uh, uh, every uh, settlement planner should have a his his own. Uh, uh, as part of their best practices, should have a, uh, a standard set of uh, term sheet language that preserves the right for a structured settlement, whether you're going to use it or not. You don't know, right? And and this is the, that's that's one of the lessons of of, of this particular case. The, the, obviously, the use of the qualified assignment should have been automatic and and would have would have eliminated the need. But but you just should, should have put it in as as a matter of course. Right. Uh, it it just is is it should go in, in in every major case, and and it's very it's it's very simple language. There's no point of my trying to recite it here on the sure, telephone sure. call. But 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 every every structured settlement broker, every settlement planner that represents plaintiff attorneys uh, should have that language. And if they don't, then then they aren't the right. Uh, a settlement planner or structured settlement broker for a plaintiff attorney to be using. Well, and another thing I noticed in the, the notes on this uh, as I was preparing, and it gets to a, a third point, which is consultant participation, is that very often, and it still stuns me, it absolutely stuns me, the number of trial lawyers that will go into a major negotiation without their own consultant. And by that, I mean someone who is independent, works and represents the plaintiff interests only, and is there to provide this kind of counsel and advice. You know, too often we will see trial lawyers doing what they do best, which is getting fixated on, a, a, on an award or the settlement or the trial. And they forget this collateral, uh, you know, decision of, you know, I need somebody who's protecting mine and my client's interest in these complex settlement matters. So to me, you know, consultation or consultant participation is absolutely crucial 
And, you know, you have a, a arguably, I think, one of the most successful trial firms in the United States in Leaf Cabraser. Uh, they have an impeccable reputation. And, you know, however, you know, as you, I think you said in the notes, they didn't have a structured settlement expert on this case until, you know, a week before the, the, the October 1st hearing, which is, uh, you know, so much of this could have been avoided, I think. Would, would, you, would you agree? Absolutely. In fact, one of the uh, ironies or even tragedies of this case is that after the fact, after the money was paid into the Leaf Cabrasier Trust Fund, some of the best advisors in the country, including Rob Wood on taxation, et cetera, were yeah. brought in. Yeah. Okay, it was a after the fact, you had the best advisors in the country come in, but, but they, it was just the wrong timing. Yeah. And everybody hears this mantra that you have to bring advisors in early. And, and that's one of the lessons here. It doesn't do any good to have a, relationships with advisors uh, and or the best advisors if you don't bring them in on a timely basis. Yeah. And and this is this is a probably the key lesson. And you have to listen to them. You have to bring them in on a timely basis and 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 listen to them because any good advisor would have would have brought up points one and two that we were talking about one that that a qualified settlement fund was was necessary and appropriate and two that the term sheet language both both in the mediation uh, term sheet and in the bankruptcy documentation and they were so simple. These are these would cost nothing to, to do the, these right. these things, relatively speaking, and and yet the cost to the to the claimant was not just the six hundred thousand dollars. Think think of the cost of the malpractice case on oh, both sides in, in time and money. I mean, you know, it was just a, a very costly mistake, and that and that's why I, I think this is such an important case and and one that that uh, so many people, including plaintiff attorneys and and uh, settlement planning advisors, can 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 use as a, as a learning lesson. Well, and Pat, it, it, before we wrap up, I think there's one other key point in this, and it, we kind of talk about cooperation and participation. And I think we can all uh, genuinely agree that, you know, the firm here, excellent firm, excellent verdict, you know, once the problem was recognized, spared no time, effort, whatever, to try and put the, you know, the toothpaste back in the tube. Uh, but also, a big part of this was, and I'm quoting from the California Court of Appeals, that you know there was substantial evidence that the real impediment to a structured settlement for this child was Safeco, not Leaf Cabraser, and that Safeco's unwillingness to expose itself to even remote potential of having to make periodic payments in the future was the ultimate obstacle to a structured settlement for this child. And without Safeco's cooperation, it was impossible for any lawyer to have obtained a structured settlement. And this raises a point that we're going to get into uh, in several future uh, podcasts and discussions, which is many of the defense firms in these cases have their own agenda. They have their own advisors. Uh, you know, many companies, you know, I think arbitrarily, and I wouldn't use the term illegally, but I think unethically, uh, refuse to put money into qualified settlement funds because it strips their ability to direct. Uh, premium dollars on structured settlements or to, you know, whatever, whatever the motivation is, uh, you know, how, what counsel would you give trial lawyers and settlement professionals in a case such as this? And we've talked about it, set the qualified settlement fund up, put, put it in the settlement language. 
But ultimately, you still may run into firms that say, well, we're just not going to fund this thing because we, you know, for whatever reason, maybe ill-considered and maybe well-considered, but like with Safeco, we're, we're not signing that paper. Uh, you know, how, how, how do we deal with that? Well, I think there are two different issues. There, there are multiple issues in the question you're asking, and yeah. perhaps uh, we ought to have a whole different uh, discussion on that. Sure. I, I, think it's a, I think it's one thing to say, um, why should or shouldn't a defendant or a defendant insurer participate in a qualified settlement fund in a case that's appropriate for one. I think that's a, that's a discussion, and I think we both have similar feelings on that. Right. In, in this case, you, you have Safeco, and remember the circumstances. I mean, you've got a, a bankrupt Chrysler where you can imagine how Safeco feels on this, yes. you know, at, at this point. And at, at this point where, where there's been no obligation uh, and frankly, no negotiation at this point on a structured settlement. Uh, and, and they've, so from their standpoint, there's been no negotiation. And if I'm a defendant and, and it's, it's a question for me of paying cash or, or doing a structure at the same cost. Uh, and, and I, I really, for, for, I don't, I don't fault Safeco in this personally. Okay. I think, I think they, they they've paid their check uh, why should they have to go through the, the, they're out of it. They paid their check. That That's all they're obligated to do. Mm-hmm. Now I'm not, I'm not party to anything more than the, than the unpublished opinion. And, and you can make the uh, case that they went back on a promise that they promised to, 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 uh, uh, take back their check and refund a structured settlement and then went back on it. And if that's the case, then, then an argument could be made, but they have to, but, but if you're safe go and you have to then go back to the bankruptcy court, uh, pay lawyers to go through the process that, that there, there is, that there's, there's always a risk of a settlement. So they're out of the case. They've paid their cash. Why do they want to go through anything more? I, I can see safe goes, perspective on that. I think it's a different issue when you can, when you can pay money into a qualified settlement fund and be out of a case, uh, as as a, I, I I think that's a a different set of issues that, that, that you and I feel very similar on and, and the, the importance of, of the qualified settlement fund is a settlement tool that has benefits for both sides. Yeah. Well, Pat, I'll tell you, this has been a great discussion. I mean, it's a big case, and we've, we've condensed it down into about uh, 30 minutes of conversation, which uh, I think is, is about as, as much of us as, as we can handle. So, <laughs> uh, But, but, but I, I do want to have you back on again, because I think there's a lot of things that we can talk about. Uh, you know, you, you, you do continually publish, uh, you know, the, the guide. And as I mentioned, you know, we will have uh, a link uh, to the Structured Settlements and Periodic Payment Judgment Act, uh, or book, I should say, uh, where people can obtain that. And uh, we'll have uh, some some links to some blog posts and information on this case, because I agree with you. I think this is kind of a seminal uh, case in the structured settlement profession. And it is a tremendous cautionary tale on the importance of qualified settlement funds, the importance of having your own consultants, and the importance of how you document the desire to structure so that you're protecting people 
all the way through. As you as you mentioned, there's never a requirement to structure by putting that language in or putting the trust in place. But uh, as this case so you know clearly illustrates, the failure to do it foreclosed opportunities that could have been there and avoided this, uh, which was otherwise a spectacular result and unfortunately devolved into this secondary issue when people should have, you know, had the opportunity to simply enjoy a tremendous result in a tragic situation that was going to take care of this family and this little child. So, Pat, thank you for joining us, uh, and it's been great having you on. Mark, thanks a lot for having me on Speaking of Justice. Uh, It's been a pleasure, and uh, thanks again. Okay, well, uh, you covered a lot of ground there, people, and I want to thank Pat Hendrick for being on the show. Uh, as you can tell, this was a really complicated, really messy case, and it was something that uh, could have been so easily avoided. And I, I really want to kind of stress again, and Pat went over this, and I'll put it in the summary, but uh, you know that, that any trial lawyer could enter into a complex or high dollar litigation without examining the use of qualified settlement fund is to me absolutely stunning. I see it every day. I see the practice of it constantly. And it is just simply a lack of information. It's a lack of knowledge. These are not expensive to set up. They are not uh, overly complex to administer. And they are the standard of practice. And it's something that I really feel strongly that we've got to continue to promote one of the things Pat didn't talk about, and, you know, he, he works for an insurance company. He's been at this uh, in the profession almost as long, you know, I guess longer than I have. So we're both, you know, 30-plus-year uh, veterans in this business. But, you know, one of the reasons people don't do it is the defense still aggressively, in many cases, does not want to see a qualified settlement fund because it prohibits defense brokers from having control over where the structured settlement or funds are diverted for structured legal fees, or directed, I should say, not diverted, but directed in funding structured legal fees, uh, funding MSAs uh, and future liabilities, funding um, you know, uh, Medicare and Medicaid trusts, funding structured settlements. Those are typically controlled by plaintiffs, and you have to remember that defense brokers, in most cases, certainly not all, uh, they are paid to structure premium, and they get those cases and that premium from the casualty companies. And many of the casualty companies have their own agenda, whether it's placing money in their own life subsidiary or whether it's part of an agreement that they have where you know four or five companies on their approved list get the uh, premium diverted their way and sent their way. Uh, I, I don't really care. I don't have a, a, you know, a dog in that fight anymore because I in almost every case, suggest people use a qualified settlement fund unless it is too late. And I've been involved in some cases where it's too late. It's not practical, uh, you know, because of the type of things we've talked about. So we'll talk more about best practices, but I think as we wrap this thing up, the main thing to remember is A, engage a consultant early who is a plaintiff expert. B, look at the uh, utility or the necessity in a particular case for a qualified settlement fund well in advance of settlement negotiations or trial. And then the third thing is, is in that settlement document memorandum or court direction or whatever, you have got to put that language in to protect the right of the client uh, so that defendants are on the hook 
and that the court is aware or all the parties aware that a structured settlement is on the table to avoid these mistakes. So lesson learned. It's an interesting case. I'll have a link to it on Westlaw. Uh, be able to look up yourself and uh, we'll, we'll take it from there. Well, we've got some more exciting guests coming up next week. I will tell you about them, uh, you know, on the Facebook page. If you have the opportunity, go to uh, Speaking of Justice on Facebook or just go to speakingofjusticepodcast.com. If someone's sharing this with you or a link, you can subscribe to us on every major podcasting uh, directory and service and and app. Uh, We're easy to find. We're easy to listen to. And, uh, you know, this is really a labor of love. It is sponsored by Wall Street and Associates. You know, we, we are, are firm believers in the U.S. justice system, both criminal and civil and administrative. And we want to be able to talk about things that matter to attorneys, matter to people that are in the judicial system so that people are treated fairly, that they don't foreclose opportunities, and that, you know, justice is actually... Uh, you know, rendered or provided in as many cases and to, to the greatest degree possible. So anyways, thank you. Uh, great listening to you. Uh, listen to a little music on the way out, and I will talk to you again uh, next week. This is Mark Wallstrom. Thank you for listening to Speaking of Justice. Mm-hmm.